Hey there, and welcome to the review of the Stargate franchise. In these podcast episodes, we'll be reviewing from the perspective of me, Layla, an avid fan of all things entertainment, and shall we say diverse perspective? For I identify as a cisgender queer woman with a physical disability who is also a licensed cognitive behavioral addiction and developmental psychologist who herself has complex PTSD, and also I'm an astrologer novice to boot. For I do believe it is all connected. To then also be born into a dysfunctional family unit, you can imagine it's been a life filled with some quite transformative experiences. What better way to utilize this unique combination of strengths to share them with the world? And that is the goal of this whole enterprise, sharing and caring. Currently, the episodes are still just reviewed by me, myself, and I. I, for one, am madly interested in what all y'all think about the following. So, as I believe the arts are humanity's greatest gift, for it allows us to experience and tap into the realm of infinite possibilities, let's get started. For today's episode, we'll be reviewing Stargate SG-1 Bloodlines, the 12th episode of the first season. The original air date was October 10th, 1997. The story was written by Mark Zaraseni. Teleplay was by Jeffrey F. King, and it was directed by Mario Atsuparti. Sometimes it's fun to look at the episode title in different languages, and particularly for this episode, the translators got creative. And I wanted to share a few with y'all to see what you think of the eventually chosen bloodlines. For example, in French, it was called Retour sur Chulak, back to Chulak. In German, it was Blutsbande, bonds of blood. In Italian, yeah, I'm not even gonna to go there. It translated into a false god's slaves. In Spanish, it was not gonna go there either. Lineage. And in Hungarian, they translated it into from father to son. Which one is your favorite? Personally, I'm in no way, shape, or form a fan of the German language, but my favorite is their Blutzbande, Bonds of Blood. Out of all of those, that would have been my pick. This episode marks the first appearances of Braytac, played by the great and fabulous Tony Amendola, Dreyak of the Cordic Plains, who in this episode is played by Sally Richardson Whitfield, and Ryak, who is played by the young and very talented Neil Dennis. Me personally, I have always loved this episode for the developmental arc of Tilk, the introduction of Braytech, though I feel like the Dreyak character was underutilized and could have been a much bigger player in this whole Stargate universe, or she seems to truly be one of the very few characters that puts the fear of God, or shall we say gods, in Tilk. Prosper, always. The episode starts off with the MGM lion roaring. Again, what I like about how they started this episode is that it starts you off on the wrong foot. We see Tilk back in his gold serpent guard getup, and as it turns out, this is traumatic memory triggered nightmare. Though he is completely on another planet, though that is what he was used to, I suppose, Tilk is aware that right about now, his son is about to endure the exact same implementation ceremony, the primtao, the word. We learned a lot of new words this episode. But the knowledge that his son is about to endure the same process to forever become dependent on gold symbiotes seems to seriously upset our usually so very stoic Tilk. Don't blame the man. That looks uncomfortable. Not to mention unpleasant. As it turns out, this nightmare is triggered when they are experimenting on Tilk and his gold symbiote to see if they can free him from his lifelong dependency on the gold symbiote. Though yes, I understand that at this point in time, the viewer does not know who Ryak is. Still, the fact that Tilk says, means nothing, hurt my feels. I mean, he could have just said, I don't want to talk about it. 
his response is, doesn't mean anything. Why did they choose that particular response? I do wonder. To me, it feels incredibly hurtful. Maybe because I love Ryak so much, but still. Especially when you later learn that it's his son, and he always planned to go back to Chulak, no matter what. So this was gonna come out sooner or later. What I like here is that we learn a lot about Tilk and Stargate Command by means of him volunteering, I'm assuming, for a second there, for this experimentation. And bless Fraser, she says that they are doing this, yes, one, to free Tilk, but also if they can find a way to duplicate the effects of a symbiote, they can use it to save people. So that makes me feel very warm feelings towards Dr. Fraser and Tilk. Also, throwing back to the very first episode, introducing an alien species and them wanting to snack Tilk away to Langley to experiment on him. And that's like in society, always the common thought, right? That if we are introduced to alien species or someone with some X-Men-like abilities, that you should be very concerned that they're going to kidnap you and experiment on you. It has been been the plot of many a sci-fi comic tv show movie because we kind of somehow know this and condone this but also frown upon it at the same time oh we are capable of so many complicated feelings that's always the paradoxal nay dialectical reasoning that we all carry inside of us on the one hand we want to learn all we can learn about it to both learn to use it for our benefit but also to learn to defend ourselves against it and then also for the betterment of humanity but at the same time like you're different, unknown, scary. That's why we kind of want to keep you contained and maybe experiment a little on you. But we're also well aware that that is morally bankrupt or at the very least objectionable. So for them to introduce where Tilk offers himself up as a guinea pig, I think could also win him a lot of sympathy votes, at least appease the assholes at Langley that want to study him. But also they maybe for that reason, because they are still allowed to study him, he remains free and able to join SG-1. Because in that scene, they tackle so many social, philosophical constructs in such a beautiful, well-rounded way that I love. Plus, we also learn just biological facts about his dependency on the Goa Uld. So yes, it really does function as his immune system. So no, he really can't rip it out and just go about his business. He is wholly dependent on the symbiote for survival. Once again, I can't emphasize this enough, the magic that is Stargate. In just a few seconds, they introduce so many layered aspects and constructs and subtle ways to make you think about certain deep, deep philosophical perspectives and viewpoints and opinions that people can have that they are to more or less extent aware of. And also, we learn some interesting fun facts about the Stargate universe, and in this case, the Jaffa, which is a unique alien species specific to this franchise. Despite his earlier denials, when they're discussing the outcome of this experimentation round, them expressing the desire to give the people at Langley a gold symbiote to study seems to give Till an in, saying that there are bountiful symbiotes up for grabs on Julak. For a second, I'm gonna have a serious brain fart train derailment here. How did they come up with the name Chulak? Because I've always wondered, did they get the inspiration from the director and producer Christopher Chulak? Oftentimes, you see his name because he has worked on ER, Third Watch, SEAL Team, Southland. Whenever I see his name, it always makes me go like, hmm, maybe I should watch Stargate again. Okay, that was the end of my brain fart train derailment. Music 
If anything, Tokyo even tries to oversell it a little bit, saying that it's one of the few places in the entire galaxy with such an abundance. Of course, O'Neill Daniel remind him that the last time that they were on True Luck, they had to shoot their way out. To no one's surprise, Hammond too says that he can't authorize such a mission. Tilk, and that is just, again, the beauty of Christopher Judge's acting chops, is that with minimal change in his facial expressions or change in pitch or tone, people that are attuned to it can clearly tell, oh, he is mired. When he says that, then I shall speak of it no further. Christopher Judge does that with such composure. Daniel and O'Neill, knowing Tilk a little better than most, notice that something's up. So O'Neill goes to apologize for not backing his play after Tilk has returned to his room. Quarter, let's call it quarters. Here you quickly learn that O'Neill thinks that maybe Tilk is concerned being cut off from any and all access to gold symbiotes now and in the foreseeable future. And again, it speaks volumes that that wasn't even Tilk's concern, or at least not yet. At this junction, Tilk now suddenly reveals that his concern is not for himself, but for his son, Ryak, and BT Dubs, he also left behind a wife. And here again, I love this moment between O'Neill and Tilk. You get to understand both of their perspectives. Understandably, O'Neill gets a little peeved because Tilk lied when they asked him if he left anyone behind that could possibly be used against him. And at the same time, they highlight and make it relatable where Tilk was coming from by hiding this information. Together with them, you go through that entire process of getting angry, understanding Tilk's fear and why he withheld this information, but also his determination now to do something about it. The depth, again, this is still season one. The depth of these characters, how easy it is to relate to these characters, even though sometimes they are at opposite viewpoints in the conversation. I think, again, one of the many reasons why I fell in love with Stargate. I fell fast and I fell hard. When Tilk reveals his reasoning, a warrior becomes vulnerable if his family is held hostage to the enemy. But O'Neill reads between the lines and sees his real motive and says, You didn't think we'd trust you if we'd known. And through that, he shows Tilk that I understand where you're coming from, but he also does tell him this damaged their, and most importantly, his trust in Tilk. This beautifully showcases psychologically responsible communication skills. I love it. And for me, and luckily soon thereafter for O'Neill and Daniel as well, despite that he lied, they can understand where he came from and now they trust him all the more. Because what he did, betraying his god, betraying anything and everyone he ever knew to save their lives, to come to Earth to start working with the team, it would have had, probably, could have had, most certainly, did have, direct terrible consequences for the people that he left behind. Deciding to save their lives, Tilk jeopardized and offered up not only his life, but also jeopardized, possibly sacrificed the lives of his wife and son. If anything, that would have made me trust him more, as it now leaves me in more awe of what he possibly, probably sacrificed. Does anyone agree? Or is that just me? And despite his earlier qualms and pussyfooting around, Tilk now puts his foot down and says, With or without you, I am returning to Chulak. On the one hand, I was like, all this time, nothing about this and his family and his son. And okay, yeah, to a certain extent, I do get that. But now suddenly, it's an hour never thing. And granted, again, it's an episode and we have to ramp up the action to get it all shoved into one episode. And this does make the urgency of him going to Chulak as soon as possible make sense. And we learn more about the Jaffa and the gold symbiote and how it rules their anatomy and how it all works in Jaffa land. So that is all shoved into this episode 
episode, yes, makes perfect sense. Again, this is the beauty of cinematic entertainment, is you can go through the steps really fast. <laughs> Because in real life, this usually takes a minute or 10 or 15 or 5 years. I mean, I am still baffled that we are already back in 2024 where there's another election and they are still just starting in as much as it's even made possible. Their indictments against Trump. On the one hand, I'm like, you have four fucking years. What took you so long? And on the other hand, I'm like, you better have taken your time to now nail him to the wall and make it impossible for him to ever get reelected. But yeah, sometimes again now with it taking him off the ballot, but at the same time postponing because of it being an election year just like back in 2020 when they had the chance to impeach him again i was like oh dear god in heaven please let them impeach the motherfucker so he is not able to come back even though around that time more and more republicans were turning against him for like five seconds as it turned out but either way had they followed through back then that would have saved us so much hassle and anxiety energy that quite honestly we could have spent on a lot more important, equally earth-shatteringly defining events that are happening, but the fact that we are now expending so much energy on this again blows my mind, saddens me greatly. Please tell me we're not that big of a bunch of masochists, because now we have to actually, genuinely, really be once again concerned that he will return, because apparently somehow they are now all backing him again, calling him the gift from God, and all the other Republican candidates don't even stand a freaking chance. Which sometimes truly makes me wonder, how did we ever get back here? And then get a little annoyed with, we didn't have to end up back here and I blame you. But the blame game doesn't get us anywhere, so breathe through it. Let it go, let it blow. Moving on, sorry. <laughs> Another brain fart snuck in there. Apologies. Despite earlier mentioning that Tilk has now lost his trust, he still says going to Chulak with or without the team is suicide, my friend. So despite feeling betrayed right here and now, he does still view himself as Tilk's friend. That moment may have seemed insignificant to most, but to me, that really showed that I am angry with you, rightfully so, because lying is bad, but also I am in the future probably, or already am, forgiving you or forgave you. So again, this whole conversation between Tilk and O'Neill, I love because the communication skills are on point. Which is actually quite interesting because his marriage to Sarah broke up because he didn't communicate in the slightest after losing their son. So maybe sometime around there he went to therapy and learned to talk about his feels. It seems once Tilk started to care and share a bit, the floodgates opened because he now also explains another reasoning for him to be so adamant about wanting to go to Chulak now is that his son will be called into the religious life of the Goa'uld world, you know, the implementation, the Primtav. Let's not forget that it's also the spiritual component. The Jaffa are raised to believe that the Goa'ulds are their gods. To sell his story even more, he now reveals that his teacher, Braytak, believes as he does, that the Goa'ulds are false gods and that their enforced dependency on the symbiotes is a means of enslavement enacted by the Goa'ulds. So, I think this is the most talking Tilk has done maybe in all the previous episodes combined, but again, the way that they took the viewer through this entire conversation where new information is revealed, which makes you go like, wait, what, you lied? I'm feeling betrayal towards Tilk for holding back and well, apparently flat out lying about ties back home, but also takes you through the reasoning and takes you through 
O'Neill's betrayal and forgiveness, and also helping you to understand where Tilk is coming from to, presumably, of course, engender empathy and maybe even sympathy for his predicament. And when he says at the end of all of that, I will not allow my son to become a slave, Ooh, that gave me feels. Like, maybe more so because it's a black man saying this, but to me, that makes me... Let's go. Now. Like, how can we deny this man? Just, ooh. Which then allows for a little reality check, because yes, you are right, we can't just go puff off. First, of course, they have to convince Hammond. SG-1 seems to be on board right now, but Hammond needs a little convincing. And again, here I love that the entire team comes in giving the arguments to help convince Hammond. For instance, Daniel says the Jaffa are incubators and the foundation of the army utilized by the Gold, which, yeah, Faustian bargain, if ever. And once you've listened to my April part two episode of Let's Review 2023, can can anyone spot a possible similarity right there? Hmm. Neil goes in for the strategy by saying that there are other Jaffa who believe as Tilk does, and Hammond kind of calls his bluff by asking, how many can we be sure of? And again, God bless O'Neill, he doesn't lie. He says, well, currently we are pretty sure of at least one. That moment always makes me chuckle. And then Carter comes in stating that it is a strategic advantage if they could undermine the loyalty of Jaffa that the Go'ulds have also made themselves dependent on. Not only did they make the Jaffa dependent on Go'uld symbiotes, but also making their symbiotes dependent on Jaffa for their very survival. So chip away at that loyalty and you can win a war, my friend. So all in all, all these arguments are good and convincing, and you see that Hammond starts to come around, but despite all that, he does ask for that one-on-one -on -one with O'Neill, and you just know, and he knows, because it's written all over his face, again, good acting, that he is going to get creamed. What I really like is that Hammond respects the hierarchy of it all. He seems to sense that there are ulterior motives, but he doesn't call O'Neill out in front of the rest of the team. This does now force O'Neill to come clean. Despite his earlier stance in his conversation with Tilk, he now truly defends Tilk and says that he understands why he withheld this information, which again goes to show that he forgave Tilk. Like, he was pissed off he lied, but also he understands why he lied. Doesn't mean he agrees with it, but he at least understands it. And the fact that he now so valiantly, truly defends him, yeah, he forgave him. And I think they share his concern because they are all now backing him to basically go back to the planet where they barely survived their previous visit. Hashtag squad goals, truly. But what happens next? Yes, I understand the urgency that Tilk is feeling, and that's why he's throwing all caution into the wind and just dons his Serpent Guard outfit and starts dialing the gate. My first thought was, dude, O'Neill almost had Hammond convinced. This can really piss him off to the point that it ruins your chances of getting authorization at all. Fortunately, it works out well for him as Hammond now authorizes the team to go and retrieve Tilk's son. Shortly thereafter, we see Tilk still in his Jaffa Serpent Guard suit and the rest of the team apparently decided to go undercover as priests. 
I guess the last time they hijacked a few priests or something, or like I know they saved a bunch of people, but I didn't think they saved any of the priests. So where they exactly got this outfit from, who knows? But convenient, I suppose. And this was the first time I really noticed, and I actually made a post about it because maybe someone in the Stargate community knows the answer to this one, and I just totally spaced on it. As they arrive on the planet, the priests have a symbol on their forehead. But it's not Apophis' symbol. Whose symbol is this? Or is this just this one time in this episode and don't matter, let it go. Once again, I'm enamored with the beautiful location, supposedly on Shulak. These shots made me fall in love with British Columbia, Canada, and God willing, one day I'll be able to visit. I mean, I'm not saying that I was born in the wrong place. I was probably, maybe, well, I used to say I was born at the wrong time, but, you know, the whole internet of it all. I'm kind of thankful that that is right around the time that I was here. But the Netherlands is fucking flat. Like, we don't have mountains. We have hills, if you want to call them that. And just, it's all flat and farmland and cities and just, like, okay, granted, thankfully not the skyscrapers y'all got in America. But I fell in love with the Northern America. American landscape. Truly gorgeous. Moving on. The team hides their disguises once they get on the planet, and my first response is, why? Because that made you blend in. Why would you then don your Stargate Command outfits, which clearly makes you stand out? For me, that was stupid. Still though, Tilk stays in his Serpent Guard outfit, and they walk up to a burnt-out house. Now, it isn't until he sees what's on the side of the pretty much only wall still left standing, we suddenly see a very emotional Tilk, and some people could have argued with his stoic countenance that he just doesn't feel emotions that strongly, but this just goes to show there is a really big heart in that big, big man, and that he just probably becoming Apophis' first prime, just learned to really subdue any and all outward displays of emotion. And I know that Christopher Judge said that he got inspired by Leonard Nimoy's uh, Spock, including that characteristic eyebrow. But, like, some people, I think, in the beginning maybe could have argued, like, what does Christopher Judge really do? He hardly acts. He shows no emotions. But in this episode, I hope he blew their fucking socks off. Throughout this episode, multiple times, I got emotional due to his great performance. And I remember the first time I saw this, for a second there, I thought we were, like, gonna see a little gladiator-esque scene where we would see his wife and son strung up and burnt and just, like, eh. But no, still a family show, people. Apparently, it's a giant symbol painted on the side of the house, and the symbol means this was the home of Shulva, meaning traitor. Now, I have to say, this scene, the moment that Christopher Judge falls to his knees and suddenly you see all that emotion in an actor who usually plays it very stoically, still now, knowing what's coming, knowing what's gonna happen, having seen this scene multiple times, his performance still moves me. To alleviate this scene, and I gotta say it really works, we are now introduced to Braytac. Not often does a character get introduced and just in a few scenes or in a scene or in an episode, you immediately fall in love with them. And this scene, just all of it, the interactions with every single team member, Tony Amandola, I love you. Like literally during this scene, you stole my heart. What I really love about the Braytech character is that he, yes, looks to be a man of a certain age. Still, he looks like such a young spry fellow. Excellent casting. Absolutely love him throughout the entire show. And even, I think, years later, he was on Once Upon a Time. He looked exactly the same. I did kind of miss his little mischievous glint in the eye. Spry. I was playing Geppetto, but I could see he was still in there somewhere.
What I did notice is that Tilk Serpent Guard's outfit has this clear, I presume, hard upstanding neck to his collar. And with Braytech from day one, he has this little rolled up foam collar. I can only assume that that was done for the comfort of the actor because that upstanding collar looks mildly unpleasant, especially when you see them running throughout the show, you see that thing bounce. And I can only imagine a lot of people got hurt by that. And another thing in this episode, yes, again, with like for Tilk, it turns out that shaving his head is part of the spiritual Jaffa experience, and he religiously, throughout many, many seasons, adheres to that. Poor Christopher Judge. Yet, again, all the others just wear caps, because you can't, I presume, ask actors for a clean-shaved head. Not every man can pull that look off. Some really do, but some really don't. Though Sholva gets explained for meaning traitor, what Braytek says, the shweet, never gets translated, I don't think. I mean, granted, Hashak doesn't get translated, but we can all guess that that's an insult of some sort. We do now get our first Tecmate. Oh, I love that one. For some reason, I don't know who came up with it. I don't know if it's actually derived from any true languages out there, probably. But if we could, like, all start to use that to show our respect, a person of authority or just, you know, persons, people that we respect, I'm on board. Just like during the COVID pandemic, someone said we should go back to curtsying and bowing. And I was like, okay. I was never a handshake kind of person anyway. So I'm game. But unfortunately, no, the handshake is back again. Nope. Am I the only one that could have gone without that ever returning? I really want to know, was it Tony Amondola that decided to bite Michael Shanks' wrist or was that in the script? I don't know what it was other than genius. Also, the way that he, on one hand, just insults them all individually, but at the same time says that Tilk's chosen friends impress him because he doesn't know of anyone else in his 133 years that ever dared to defy the gold and live to tell about it. Just all of this, the performance, the acting, the writing, the scene setting, all of it, love it. And to wrap up this scene, this time around, the thing that gave me pause was why didn't Braytag keep a closer eye on Tilk's family? On the one hand, I understand that they become Kreshta, outcasts, but still, like, he couldn't have checked in on them, helped them a little, as his mentor that believed as he does, meaning that he was probably incredibly proud of Tilk's decision and sacrifice, to then not take better care of his son. I was a little disappointed. Now, for the first time ever, I thought about it. Before, this never even came up, but now watching it and trying to really delve into it, that thought popped into my head that I found it odd. I like that moment when O'Neill tries to give Carter and Daniel directions that Daniel seems genuinely insulted, referencing Tilk's earlier words that they were warriors of great skill and cunning. And yes, my darling, you are badass. But it never hurts to be safe in enemy territory, which apparently in this episode you really truly do forget. Once again, this created a, a nice moment between the characters. I love the dynamic when Tilk, Braytek, and O'Neill go off on their own mission, where Braytek keeps calling O'Neill human as a sort of derogatory term, which I'm guessing it kind of sort of is to a Jafar. But still, there is respect there, and O'Neill still tries to think that he's in charge, but oh no, Braytek is clearly the big man on campus in this episode. They even start talking religion, hello, way to get deep instantly, and how O'Neill talks about Hammond serving a very good bald man from Texas, and just this scene, I cherish it, inspires such a beautiful, funny scene that still warms my heart 25 plus years later.
night. Tilk vision slash nightmare. There is only one priest as he enters the ceremonial tent. As they go hand to hand, someone else jumps in. And once Tilk gets a jump on them as well, it turns out it is his baby mama, Treyarch. And I gotta ask, truly, like, did y'all mess up in wardrobe and forget to give this girl pants? Because clearly it was very cold that date. For why else is her skirt so fucking short? Clearly, there's no love lost between these two, and hello, someone likes it rough. Goodness me. But in all seriousness, I love how they approached this. All of it with everyone's perspectives yet again. They're on opposite ends, and yet you understand both of their perspectives. You can clearly see that Dreyok is desperate. You also know how the implementation ceremony, the Primta, is basically a means of enslaving. I truly love how they once again walk the viewer through all of it. Through Tilk's perspective, through Dreyok's perspective, even how they feel about each other's perspectives. At the end of it, you understand both. And for a second here to do expand a bit on their opposite viewpoints and how they come together eventually. I personally think that they did it really well. Took abandoned, betrayed them, and you can't argue that. Especially if you see the mansion that they lived in when he was first prime and where they are now. At insult to injury, they are even shunned amongst the outcasts due to Tilk's heresy and betrayal of the Goa'ulds. Which, side note, kinda weird. There's clearly, apparently, no honor amongst outcasts. Cool people. Knowing how Tilk views the implementation ceremony, it can be even quite shocking to see how desperate Dreyak is for his son to be entered into slavery. And who better to know than the man that suffered the exact same fate? And apparently Dreyak even had to beg the priests to make Ryak a Jaffa to show them that they are still loyal to the Goa'uld, explaining how she'd hoped they would lift them out of banishment and they would be allowed to return to the city, which you could then, and Tilk does, call selfish, as in you are willing to turn your son into a, a Jaffa, a slave, for all intents and purposes so you can be more comfortable on the other hand you can also understand this is how it is done it's all they know it's tradition though i want to jump on tilk's bandwagon and add to that that you were already ousted for tilk's actions they were never truly going to trust you no matter what you did so the rebel in me would have said why try and live the lie and not just embrace your freedom that tilk has shown because apparently he got away he survived hell maybe braytag could have gotten you off of the planet to safety but that's again side note Dreyak tries to press upon Tilk why this decision, this desperate plea, wasn't selfish. For conveniently, though now suspiciously, through all of this, the boy did not awake. As it turns out, Ryak is very, very sick, which Tilk learns when he tries to awaken Ryak and Dreyak tries to stop him. And to add some serious insult to injury, she explains to him, Ryak believes Tilk to be dead. And then, yes, rightfully, this pisses Tilk off, which is when he grabs her by the hair. Hello. Her decision to tell Ryak that Tilk is dead, I have a side note on that, which I will get to in a minute. Her explanation for this choice is made in such a way that you can't really deny the truth of it. For she says, what would you have me do? Tell your son that his father left him for people he does not know? And point made. Then we go from a psychologically sound argument to manipulation, where before she is stating a fact, she is now basically making a threat. Tell him and see the betrayal and dishonor in his eyes. And again, like Christopher Judge, such a great actor, you see him feeling the impact of these words. This man has skills. You see it the moment the realization hits him. You can all read it on his face. Great acting. 
Unfortunately, we now have a small problem. The priest's symbiote died because he conveniently fell on top of his dagger, killing his symbiote, plus the symbiote meant for Ryak got his neck snapped. And again, props to the Stargate crew that through this intense, emotional, covering serious topics scene, they alleviated in a way that it's not undermining everything that just transpired, but build on it, also inserting a little funny, as they show O'Neill holding the nearly decapitated symbiote at gunpoint. They so poignantly wrap up this scene by having Dreyar tell him that Tilk has condemned his son to death due to his interference today. And again, what better way to make him truly understand her perspective, why she was so adamant of letting Ryak become a Jaffa. She instructs Tilk with some serious, though very rightful, indignation to carry their dying son to the hovel that has become his home. Again, feels... This entire scene, you at least I am, I'm, I'm really wondering how other people experience this. Between Tilk's perspective, her perspective, I understand them both. And I feel for them both, because they both feel like they didn't have another choice. And this child is suffering. And as I said earlier, I wanted to come back to this point, both from a professional, as well as, unfortunately, my own personal experiences coming from a broken family with a lot of dysfunction. <laughs> First, let me start out with the professional part, like working in child services, seeing what divorce parents struggling with addiction mental health problems, etc, etc. What that does to the child, I always just feel for the kid. Like, they had no choice whatsoever getting stuck in this situation. You two were the ones deciding how this is all going to play out. People who are supposed to be mature adults, acting like obstinate children, trying to stick it to each other, is incredibly destructive to the overall well-being of the child, no matter their age. Because kids are born with a loyalty to both parents. They are literally a biological marriage of both. Deny a parent, you deny part of your child. And I've seen it time and time again. No matter how well-intended you are thinking that you're protecting your child from a toxic parent, physically protect them, yes. Emotionally, give them a safe place to land, for sure. But don't cut them off completely. They need to know. These kids, no matter the struggles that their parents were dealing with, including uh, active addiction, homelessness, even straight up being in jail, supervised visits still allows these children to get to know their parent, to have a bond how tenuous as it may be. It still allows them to know that part of themselves and make their own decision with which part they identify and which part they don't, and to live with it and all the consequences that come with that choice. For those who haven't listened to my Let's Review episodes of 2023. I have expanded on this a little bit by my own personal upbringing. What you should know is that my parents divorced when I was two. I was the youngest of three. After my parents got divorced, he had a child with someone else. So I have a half-sister. And by the time I was nine or ten, I had begged and pleaded my mother for many years to not make me go to my dad, who he would visit every other weekend. But my mother continued to force me to go. Aside from the abusiveness there, the point I'm trying to make is I knew who my father was. I experienced it. Not from an entirely safe position, but I, I knew who he was. And I also thus knew that he was not for me. Being in contact with my dad only hurt me. I may have resented my mother for making me go for as long as she did. And then it apparently required me to physically collapse at age 10 for her to finally fucking listen to me. But I never resented her for any of the other stuff that followed my choice. Because it was my choice. A choice I still stand by to this day. Despite that it pretty much solidified my position as the black sheep of the family. I've now learned that there's another word for me. Cycle breaker. 
And hey, this wasn't just a one-off. I tried to get the apology, to get the understanding from my dad multiple times, but every single time he reaffirmed what I already knew. So when I was 17, I basically just told him, thank you for nothing, bye. And okay, that may have been slightly bitchy, but where's the lie? And I never looked back. And like I said, I don't regret it. Maybe someone here has a different experience. By all means, do share. That's what this is all about, sharing our stories. <laughs> For those interested to share the ending of my story, at least this part, choice truly got put to the test when a few years ago my dad died. And a year before that I knew that he was sick and I knew that that was the kind of cancer that usually meant you didn't have that much time anymore. And I reassessed. Like, it had been, I think, 15 years or so since the last time I saw him, and I reassessed, like, am I still okay with the situation as it is? Is there anything that I feel like I need to tell him or say to him or that I want to hear from him? And I came to the conclusion, nope, I'm good. And then when I learned he died, I was okay. Because over the past 17 years, I've had ample time to deal with the fact that this man was my biological father. And to mourn that fact. And to come to grips with that fact. To accept that fact. To learn to be okay with that. It's been now a few years and I regret nothing. The only apprehension I felt was his dying wish would be to see me. And I'm not the kind of person that denies someone their dying wish, so I would have gone. But that would have resulted in a whole lot of drama that I was not looking forward to. Because I know what he would have wanted from me. I know that I would not have been able to give him that. For no, I did not regret my choice to break off ties with him, which I think would have hurt him and pissed off my sisters that I would hurt a dying man. But to me, it's like, you wanted me here. You expected me to be the weeping sister like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. No. I'm not gonna lie to you on your deathbed. If anything, I'm gonna tell you the truth with some cheese on it. That's the longest yard reference. Inappropriate? Maybe a little. My point is, what I've learned in this family is that manipulation, blackmail, and being a hypocrite in their eyes is normal. I am not one such person. And then when I don't live up to that expectation of everyone is that, that's when the going gets tough and I always end up fucked and not the happy kind. So therefore, I always chose to, especially since I've become an adult, to extricate myself from those kinds of situations. But through everything, it was that on my deathbed wish. That was basically the thing that I wasn't exactly looking forward to, but that I also knew that I would do because, like I said, I'm not going to deny anyone their dying wish. No matter my own personal issues with them, I would have done it for him because apparently he felt like he needed that before he died. But thankfully, well, thankfully for me, maybe not so much for him, he died before that even became a thing. And apparently later I heard he did want to see me, that my oldest sister forbade him for inviting me, which, oh, the karmic irony. But come to think of it, maybe it was because so then I wouldn't see my nephew. So maybe that was wholly self-serving, which, like I said, is par for the course for these people. To fully disclose why that is so karmically ironic, father never knew that my mother had finally granted my request, my plea, to stop making me go to daddy. For on that same day, or at least in that same week, I have no idea what the astrological trends were. Maybe I should look into that. My father kicked us out because apparently my mother sued him for child support and the government found out that he was embezzling. Big time. So my father was angry with my mother and took it out on us. Stellar parenting decision. Little did he know that I was actually quite thankful not to have to go to him anymore. And I decided to never ever go back. I still wanted to have my half-sister, same dad, different mom, in my life. However, he then decided to blackmail me that the only way that I could get access to my sister was if I were to see him. And if there is one thing that you need to know about me, I do not respond well to threats. I did ultimatums of blackmail. So I said no, resulted in me losing my sister through no fault of our own. And holy thanks to daddy. 
So people, it was mutual. And ironically, the child in this parent-child dynamic would be me was the only one held responsible and blamed for everything that followed. Doesn't sound right, now does it? It was a giant ass detour into my dysfunctional family dynamics, but in my opinion, it proves the point. It should be a child's decision because then they will never ever regret it. Despite any possible seen or unforeseen consequences, I still to this day do not regret it. Unfortunately, I fear that my nephew, on the other hand, will have to struggle with this for the rest of his life. Before my sister decided to outdo my father, which was an accomplishment I actually did not think was possible. But there you go. See what happens when you assume. My sister Plainass elected to banish the baby daddy from their lives and even went as far as to change my nephew's last name to really try and delete him from their lives. But on his birth certificate, birth announcement card, that's not his name. So you can erase all the fuck you want, but it's there. It, he is part of him. And unfortunately, when she did that, she also excommunicated his entire family. But she did all of this when the boy was four. So it wasn't his choice. She even fucking brainwashed him into celebrating that he was now part of our family because he now shared our last name. And then she forced him to call her new boyfriend because, of course, she had a new one lined up. Forced him to call her new boyfriend Daddy. And when my mother and I kept calling him by his name and not Daddy, then my nephew started to correct us, saying you're supposed to call him Daddy. Clearly evidence that he was being coached making me feel trapped. I was like, I don't want to create more conflict in your mind, but I also don't want to condone this. Luckily, shortly thereafter, she kicked us out of his life as well, so I guess that's how she solved that problem. But denying him access to his son, you also deny your son access to a man who is half of who he is. Be it not biologically, then partly psychologically, then partly access to an entire family. She cut them all off, cut everyone out of her life that didn't agree with how she was parenting, if you want to call it that, by just kicking everyone else to the curb who didn't fully agree with her. Can anyone say borderline personality disorder? And then just tried to erase him altogether. And the dude had issues, trouble, yes. And as you've heard, she wasn't exactly a peach herself. Despite all of that, he has right to be part of his son's life. Time was now stolen from them both. Time they will never get back. From time with his grandmother has since died. He never got to know her. All those years that we missed. That is time lost that you can never get back. Me and my nephew, we were incredibly close. Astrologically speaking, when I saw his chart, I needed 10 minutes. His chart is nearly an exact copy of mine. The houses are almost to the degree exactly the same. Same sign, same intercepted houses, same Rahu Ketu for the ones that know that your north node and your south node your life's purpose your life's destiny so quite important so we have pretty much the same personality we have a little different identity because the planets of course are differently placed inside of those signs and houses but still i've drawn a lot of charts this one especially seeing that we're related wowza if you believe in karma, and I'm starting to believe in it more and more, my sister may have created karma with me. She got it served right back, and now not in a sibling relationship, but in a mother-son relationship. Because how else do you explain the fact that we have spent, well, I think by now at least half of my life separate from each other, and then getting served a child that is basically a carbon copy of me, personality-wise, anyway. I do have to say I kind of enjoy the irony, and my other sister, with whom I have never had in any way, shape, or form a decent relationship, and she basically hates the fact that I exist, she is now gifted a child with a chronic physical illness as well. When I flipped the script that way and realized that that could very well be seen as karma after the way that they've treated me, 
for the first time I thought, damn, that quote was actually right. Don't, and I'm Scorpio, so revenge can be a big thing if we're underdeveloped. You don't need revenge, just let karma do its job, and with a little luck you can just sit back and enjoy the show. I'm not necessarily enjoying the show because I really wished that my sisters did not choose this way to live their lives, and then that they get served children, and thus children having to carry this generational karmic traumatic load. I really wish that would not have been necessary in the first place, but when I started to see it that way, somehow I could let go of my anger and frustration and resentment towards my sisters, and embrace myself fully for who I am, really let go of the need I've always felt to apologize for existing because my birth upset the family. And I mean, having a disabled child, okay, I get that that's maybe not necessarily what you were hoping for, but still, you know, it's there. Or, I'm there. <laughs> Hello, I didn't choose this either. Or, well, depending on how you look at that. But personally, if I had a vote, or can I, like, renege my vote? <laughs> I would not have chosen this body, this life, if I, you know, get a do-over. But at the same time, I'm here. And I do believe everything happens for a reason, and I also do believe that certain things that I may have hated for the vast majority of my life have also, in a way, protected me. So, oh, alright then, I'll take it. Just, it's a lot of family drama that impacted a lot of people's lives over a lot of generations. I bear no ill will to anyone, but I'm also very clear on the fact that I don't want you in my life because you do not respect me, you do not respect my boundaries, and you don't even accept me for who I am. So I'm done trying to make you like me. I've spent 35 years trying to make the people in my family like me because I kept thinking that I was the problem in some way, somehow, for being me. But over the past few years, if there's one thing I've truly learned, nope, it's okay to be me. And if you have an issue with that, you are welcome to leave. After becoming a psychologist specialized in childhood development and working with these families, working with these children, seeing how they had to learn to live with addicted parents, struggling with mental health issues, parents with abusive marriages, I got to see it from a professional perspective as well. And I could see though, yes, of course, every time your heart would break when a parent did not show up or let the kid down for the gazillionth time. When there is a support network to make the child feel loved, to explain to the child that it's not their responsibility, not their fault, and that even though their parents might not be able to right now, maybe possibly ever, they are still worthy, they are still valuable as a person, and there are still people that love them and that will care for them. Family don't end with blood, and sometimes it doesn't even start with blood. That, to see the impact of that, Knowing also, again, from personal experience, the impact from people outside of my very dysfunctional family, showing me that I was a person worthy of love, that I was a person that was lovable, saved me. Because although everything in my family felt unsafe and just dysfunctional as fuck, getting confirmation, I mean, when I... <laughs> When we were studying emotional neglect, they gave five examples, and for my dad, I could tick off four out of five. That, for me, those moments were like confirmation of, it wasn't just you. This really was not a healthy, normal relationship. It makes sense that you felt the way you did. If you straight up just delete a parent or try to delete a parent because you can't cut a family tree in half, that makes it kind of, you know, fall down. That analogy? I don't know. Keep it in. 
Same with the name. I, for a second, too, wanted to change my last name. I wanted nothing to do with that part of the family because that part of the family had never treated me right. And my grandparents even offered to pay for it because it was apparently quite a lot of money to change your last name. But I realized, I think incidentally around the time that I discovered Romeo and Juliet, like, what's in a name? It was my name. And frankly, my mother's last name just didn't suit me. <laughs> so I stuck to this one. Plus, I'm a girl. I can get married. And, you know, hopefully he has a better name. And if not, fuck it. This is my name. This is the name I was given. And I will make something of it. Even if y'all couldn't. Plus, as I found out, your initials can be turned into funny, so you bet I'm keeping it. Still, all in all, through everything, I'm happily living with it because it was, eventually, but ultimately, my choice. Plus, the truth always comes out. I mean, she told Raya because dad was dead and poop, there he is. That always happens. Same with my sister. She may have had to fight for many, many years in this justice system because, yes, mothers do get preferential treatment from the judge. However, this judge apparently saw through all her bullshit and ordered her to allow him access to his son. But unfortunately, in the Netherlands, apparently when you ignore the judge, nothing happens. So then it took, again, a lot of years for him to actually, I think, make any contact with his kid. The last I heard was was that he was now slowly starting to build a relationship with his by now young adult son. I don't know, I don't, I'm not in contact with any of them. Too much drama. It's just an endless cesspool of drama and manipulation, so I got off that roller coaster as soon as I could. Through my profession, I got confirmation that you can, in healthy, safe way, for instance, supervised visits, allow a child to get to know their parents, the good, the bad, the ugly, and then to make their own choice. Because that way, they won't hold it against you when they grow up. And as you've heard, I speak from experience. I've talked about this before, I think. A child can never be loved enough. There are not ever enough people. There's not a quota that you can reach. Like, okay, now we're maxed out. No. There have been a few people throughout my life that did show me another way. And that saved me. <laughs> because on some level I knew, and that was even, even, it was a little, it was confirmation that what was happening wasn't how it needed to be. Not even not how it should be, because there's a big part of that as well. But just not how it needed to be. So coming full circle. <laughs> for this episode. Sorry. Never lie to your child. And yes, tell him that his dad went off with people he didn't even fucking know. But also then allow him the opportunity to come to terms with that in whatever way, shape, or form. Either by forgiving him or now saying, like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Fuck off. I think people oftentimes forget your child isn't person. It's an individual with their own hopes, wants, dreams, desires, fears. They should be allowed to make their own decisions. Even when they're small. Also something that I have personal experience with. People were like, well, he's your dad. Yes, he's my dad, but he doesn't emotionally care for me. He doesn't physically care for me. If anything, we had to get the doctor to pretty much tell him you need to do this for the well-being of your daughter and he still refused. So that was also, you know, it's a free country, but that should have counted against his wisdom apart from the fact, you know, that he was an alcoholic and abusive and most likely himself had borderline personality disorder. <sighs> Considering the comorbidity of that one and just everything that happened throughout our lives. I think as soon as I said I don't want to go to dad anymore, they should have listened to me. And it should not have taken me to physically collapse, even though I was like, what, 9, 10? And I couldn't fully understand what I was feeling, why I did not like to be around him. I think, one, I unconsciously remembered the marriage that my parents had because he was abusive to her. And, you know, they were divorced when I was two. So up until then, I was very much still inside of my mother's bubble. So I probably felt all of her anxiety. 
a lot more than if you're maybe a little older. You can still feel it, trust me. Kids feel that shit like no one else. Because other than that, I don't remember ever seeing him violent. He did give me my first beer when I was like eight. An alcoholic giving a child a beer and saying, don't tell your mother. Of course, me being his child, I really liked it. I'm guessing here that as an alcoholic, his reasoning was, your life sucks, here, have a beer. But is it great parenting? No. Especially add on to that, the fact, don't tell your mother, is always a really bad tactic to employ. You should not instruct your child to lie to one of their parents. Ever. Because that causes a loyalty conflict. Y'all are the adults. You sort it out. Leave the kid out of it. Oh, the irony now that I have a liver disease that he also, well, they both gave me. It's genetically uh, passed down. But I sometimes wonder, had he not started giving me alcohol that young, maybe my liver wouldn't have freaked out because my sisters have it too. They have to. But like one in 20 people have it. And of those, only one in three actually manifest symptoms. Of course, I'm the lucky fucker that manifested symptoms. But that means that my body doesn't tolerate alcohol any foreign substances. Bonus is that I can get tipsy from just one beer if I time it right. That's also so the only one I'm allowed for an entire week. So I used to hate it, especially when I got the diagnosis at 12. I was like, God damn it. I was looking forward to that time with, with college and friends and drinking and yay. But as you do, you get used to it. Only moment I ever really truly lamented not being able to drink until I passed out was when my grandmother died. She was the only true, somewhat safe person in my entire family. And that's the first time I actually thought, I'm starting to get it. But now I realize it saved my life. Because biologically and psychologically, I am primed for alcoholism. Plus, after the 2020 pandemic, being forced to basically live my worst nightmare and it no longer being a subtle, continuous prod, you don't belong here, it now became a very clear screamed in your face message of get the fuck out of here we don't want you here well i mean they talked about stuffing us into pretty much internment camps so yeah you could say it was pretty much screamed at us that we were not a part of society and that if anything they wouldn't mind if we all would just fuck off and die so i think that's you know more overt than covert as it was in the years before the pandemic but that's the first time ever that i started to drink as much as i could as in once a week before that I hardly drank ever then I started to realize okay um, I'm maybe happy that I can't drink more than this because otherwise this pandemic would have most definitely made me a full-blown alcoholic very healthy coping I do know that a lot of our clients relapsed during the pandemic as well because it was a tough time for all of us for a variety of reasons uh, so now I'm thankful for it shockingly I'm thankful for more things than I ever thought I would be considering how I felt about them most of my life but there you go perspective changes reassessment is healthy people And despite all of that, I am still of the very firm opinion, no matter how unfit a parent is in your eyes, family's eyes, or everyone's eyes, a child is still made up of that person as well. No matter how much you want to oust and deny that part, by doing that, you deny that part of the child. And no matter how much it breaks their heart, they need to know. Otherwise, you get these fantasies about, I mean, I had fantasies about learning that I was adopted and someone would come and claim me because I really didn't like my family and I wanted an out. And that is what you do as a child. You start hoping and dreaming for another, a better life. That's dangerous. For unfortunately, in this world, a lot of people have a special antenna for vulnerable people like that with ill intentions, seeking to exploit that vulnerability. 
Also, they won't be able to build this magical fantasy that once they reach adulthood and go seek out this parent, their illusion then gets crushed. It's better to just suffer through it as quick as you can, learn to readjust, and build your life. This allows children to learn that this is a part of who they are and that they should embrace it and not try to hack it away or bury it. Where you can learn to cope with that pain. To own that truth and not have it destroy you. If anything in me sharing my story here like I did, I hope I showed you that you can overcome severely dysfunctional family units such as mine. It takes a lot of hard work, but it is worth it. I promise you that. And fair warning, if you do not own every part of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, you are doomed to repeat history in either following down the exact same pathway by becoming an abusive parent yourself or an abusive partner yourself, or you go the exact opposite and you become very restricted and constipated, which is what I did for the vast majority of my adulthood, until you self-destruct. Because either way, either you destroy the relationships around you or you destroy the relationship with yourself in as far with a traumatic upbringing and you were even able to start building one. The point being, no matter how hard you try to run away from the things that you would rather not look at, and, you know, understandable, but if you do not, it is gonna catch up to you one way or another. Granted, how can you showcase something that you weren't shown as a child by the adults in your life? And this is where therapy can be of great assistance. Again, I can attest to that both from a professional standpoint and from my personal experience. Or at least that's my opinion. I don't know if others share this. I invite you please to do come share your story. And now to truly finalize, wrap up this whole existential exposition, sharing my life story. It's a purpose, though. You know, I hope, if anything, it underlined the point I was trying to make. Yes, on one hand, I understand Dreyak's choice. And because this is such a loaded topic, and unfortunately, in varying degrees, quite common, I thought I'd expand on it, both from a professional standpoint and a personal standpoint. Because I think sharing my story, I think, is a perfect example of how important not lying to your child is, about respecting your child's choices, and also, even though our instinct as a parent could be to protect them from harm, if there's one thing in my life that I've learned is protect them, yes, shield them from the truth, no, hard no. Make it age appropriate so that they can understand on their level, but mainly allow them a space to explore their own feelings, make their own choices, and like I said, through all of it, it was my choice and I do not regret it, any of it, despite it cost me quite a few relationships with other family members. I needed to sever ties with my father to survive the shred of self-worth I had. And as I grew older, I became more aware of my feelings, what they were telling me, what caused them how they impacted me, even though I cut off ties pretty much as soon as I was mentally capable of signaling I don't want to be here anymore. Also to show that if you don't learn from your own history, if you don't learn from the generational traumas and dysfunction that gets passed down so easily through our family trees, that it is of vital importance for yourself, for your family, for your offspring, but basically for every single relationship that you have, will have, have had in your life how these events shape you and that we have control to what extent and also that it's our responsibility to heal from it so that the dysfunction stops with us. You know that saying like hurt people hurt people? 
Don't be that person. Be the person that heals and spreads understanding and love and kindness. And even though I can sometimes be a little bitchy and be a little probably coming across as rather judgmental, I do hope that people still realize that I share this from place of love and that I invite people to share their stories and that there won't be judgment because I allow space for all of our experiences and all of our stories, because I also acknowledge that that is the only way that we will learn and grow as people. For I am still learning every single day. My way is not the only way, and my story is not the only narrative. I mean, I'm no doubt a villain in quite a few family member stories, but I am okay with that. For I can look myself in the eye, own what I did, accept the consequences of that. And when I come across a less developed, evolved part of myself, I choose to acknowledge that and work on it. And I invite others to do that with me. And when I'm unaware of one such spot, by all means, respectfully, point it out, please. Because I can only learn from that. episode is now mega long so sorry but hey i'll just i don't know you can fast forward i suppose if you want i am truly curious about how others view this episode view this topic view what she could have done should have done what you would have done if you would have done anything different or if you would have done the same or if you would have maybe sent tilk away so that Raik would have never known i mean that was an option as well luckily she didn't but yeah i thought i'd throw it out there because that was the idea of this podcast now we're going to go back to our scheduled programming. Shockingly though, happily, in this case, Ryak awakens to see his daddy and he is happy. And he actually said to his mama, I never believed you. So again, oh, like the moment Neil Dennis opens his eyes, I was again in love. I fell in love in this episode a lot. I'm sorry, spoiler, but I really love that they kept him on as Ryak throughout the show. And I really wonder where he is now because he was good. He was so good. Immediately, good acting, gripping character. I was in it. I was convinced. I was in love. Yes, I'm that easy. I can be, you know, actually. I never understood people call me picky. I'm not picky. Just common decency apparently means you're picky. Okay, especially now with digging into astrology with the North Node and the South Node being basically the symbol of Apophis on Tilk's forehead. This episode, for a quick second, I got confused again. <laughs> like, wait, what? Because, and I haven't found it on the internet, so if am I the first that noticed... When Carter and Daniel arrive at the temple where they... I don't even know what the fuck they're doing. Add a bowl, take out a bowl, take out a symbiote. Like, what? Can anyone explain that entire scene to me, please? But the symbol on the temple is the upside-down Apophis site. Meaning, it looks a lot like the North Node. So when I was watching this episode, my brain was like, Hey, the North Node! Wait, what? Why is this the first time that my mind goes like, Hey, the North Node! Because it's Apophis' symbol upside-down! And then the beauty, I do think, is that Apophis' signals symbolizing simultaneously the K2 meaning the south node meaning past life or or stuff that you're already good at that you carried into this life from a past life if you will being the south node as in it's Tilk's past but that's me being very existential right now maybe too much for this episode where we already did so much existentializing anywho I noticed that this episode that the symbol and the thing that they're carrying around with the symbiote thingamabob that they have the upside down symbol of Apophis on it so the north node while usually Apophis' signal on everyone's forehead is the south node so we all knew the little snafu in the second episode enemy within where in one scene the apophis symbol is also upside down but other than that not bad they did it well for over 10 years so well done peeps but yeah 
working on astrology as I have these past few months, my brain was like, hey, the North Node, <laughs> squirrel, or brain fart train derailment, as I also sometimes call them. Tilk looks broken when he learns that Ryak has been sick pretty much since the moment of Tilk's betrayal, and you hear him mumble, what have I done? Again, just the accountability that he takes in that moment, despite his best intentions of trying to prevent his son from falling into slavery, he now also realizes that by intervening today, he may have done great harm to his son, possibly even killed him. Luckily, there's O'Neill, who says he recognizes Ryak's symptoms as scarlet fever, gives him some medication, and if it was really done for the urgency of the episode, maybe. But I kind of do sort of like that O'Neill doesn't oversell it. Like he doesn't promise Tilk that, uh, no, we just have to get him back to Earth and then he will be fine. On that note, again, suddenly came to me. Considering O'Neill's own experiences of a sick child losing a child, because he was the one that found his son after he shot himself with O'Neill's most likely gun. How poised and detached he remains throughout this episode only now occurred to me as maybe slightly odd. I mean, it's good that he kept his cool. We didn't need an emotional O'Neill too. But if you look at realistic portrayal, Till coming so close to losing his son, O'Neill better than anyone supposedly knowing what that feels like. I now, again, from a therapist trauma experienced person, thought like maybe they could have added a little of that in there as well. Again, when Ryak stops breathing and O'Neill's like, oh no, we should just take him through the gate. Like, how long do you think a person can survive without oxygen. I mean, the dude doesn't have a symbiote yet. That again was a little unsensitive of O'Neill this time around, which on occasion in this episode surprises me, knowing his background. But then again, there and th there was more of that. I mean, Daniel and Carter just happily frolicking through the woods like nobody's business on the planet where he discovered and again lost his wife, where they lost Skara. I mean, at no point is that mentioned or like, can we check their home or just like, it seems to be completely separate from O'Neill and Daniel's narratives and arcs and I totally get that and this episode was fully beautifully so on Tilk and his family relations but then again we must not forget how we got here is then my brain so helpfully adding to this whole review so you're welcome but overall I hope you appreciate me pointing this out if not by all means do let me know and fast forward and if not I'm so very sorry with that scene of Carter and Daniel at the tub of symbiotes, I like that, again, they answer viewers' question of why would they just plonk it down in the middle of nowhere, no guards, no nothing, and at the same time make a funny out of it, like who would be stupid enough to steal one? And granted. The cynic in me, though, is like, why do you only have one thermos? Why not steal at least two symbiotes? This is like me being overly cautious or just realizing that you will only get this chance once, because if they discovered that you did this, and okay, maybe that's the whole point. They go at it assuming that no one will be the wiser that they were there in the first place, which Daniel then so royally fucks up. And honey, I love you, but there is a definite asterisk attached to your pacifism. Is that a word? Uh, because the hatred on his face and again, I get it, but honey bunny, one, you could have used the silencer or maybe their guns at that point in time didn't do it, but I mean, you could have kicked in the glass with the butt of your gun and then it would have been subtle. But now you firing your gun obviously so close to the city alerts the guards, so thank you for blowing that cover. But yeah, again, like I said, I do understand where he's coming from. That tub of symbiotes will one day most likely inhabit and ruin and steal another person's life, so I get it, but honey, priorities. 
So another love viewer question answered is when Daniel so nonchalantly asks Carter if the symbiote that they so delightfully, beautifully, I'm so very sorry for Amanda tapping for having to endure that giant squiggly, ugh, rather you than me, needs sustenance. Valid question. What do symbiotes need to survive? Like, how do they survive in that tub? Do you have to feed them like a goldfish? <laughs> What pretty much broke my heart, truly, after already so many hurts throughout this episode, is that it now falls to Tilk to be the one to do this to his son. He saves him, but he now also is the one that directly sentences his son to a lifetime of dependency on the gold symbiote larva. And, like, we don't get into it. I don't think we ever get into it, but I'm guessing slightly here that, I mean, Braytek says it's the right of the father, and yes, I agree, but Braytek doesn't offer his symbiote being 133 as is. I do think if anyone would have been the one, it would have to have been too, because I'm assuming, and like I said, I don't think they ever really truly tackle this, that Dreyak doesn't have one because the women are needed to bear children, so they can't have a larval gold in their belly because they need to be able to carry a child to term and there's just no room for it in there or something. In later years, we do come across a gold that only used female Jaffa. So I wonder how do they make that choice? Who becomes a female Jaffa and who becomes a childbearer? So that's a little sexist if you want to be ableist about it. But like I said, I mean, like we have uteruses and we can carry children and that child needs some space. So there's probably no room for the symbiote. But yeah, who makes that decision? Does anyone know this? Another funny moment in this episode to me was that even though Braytac and Tilk are of the opinion that the Goulds aren't gods, they still all seem shocked and even slightly pissed off that they stole the symbiote from the sepulchre. I loved Braytac's indignation, truly. I felt it. And at the same time, I was like, what? Do you care? But that just goes to show that it's very hard to really stamp out over a century, in Braytac's case, of servitude. And Christopher Judge, I love you and I have lauded your skills for acting in this episode and I stand by that. But honey bunny, when that symbiote that even Braytac says is premature meaning tiny, the face that you make when they introduce it to your pouch, honey, acting like the thing is the size of comparison. I'm thinking here. Um, like, how big of a snake is crawling inside of you? Like, anaconda size? <laughs> and I'm sorry, but that innuendo needed to be made. Because that face, honey, I love you, but that was overacting and then some. As any girl can tell you. That face gets me every time. Although, I do not think that you minded putting your big, big head in her tiny, tiny lap with her very, very short skirt. I hope she was okay with that. And then things all of a sudden start to happen really, really fast. Ryuk is doing really well, Tilk is doing better. Then why, oh why, do they decide to leave the family behind? Resulting in a mission failure on two counts. One, we are not taking Ryuk back to Earth, which was the mission authorized by General Hammond. And two, we now don't have a symbiote to give to the Langley boys to play with. 
some way how do understand from Tilk's perspective that he leaves him behind with his mother, who he does praise for being a good parent, before he leaves and in the tutelage of Braytag, which in hindsight makes a lot of sense because if he would have come to Earth, they wouldn't have really had much of a life. But at that time, watching this after everything that they went through in this episode, I was like, dude, you're so close. Why? Take them with you. But yeah. Also, that would have probably caused Tilk to not leave such a free free life to party around with SG-1 so you know I get it for the storyline we needed to make Tilk three-dimensional but at the same time not weigh him down so I get it and, and like overall like you <laughs> may have noticed I really like this episode but this was a complete 180 that kind of threw me for a loop a bit and though it is absolutely adorable that at the end O'Neill orders Carter's to ten her to Bray Tack at the end, but I mean, sweetness, that don't mean shit to Bray Tack because he doesn't know our military signals and ways and whatnot. Although he does seem to recognize it as a means of honoring or respecting him as he triumphantly holds his staff weapon up in the air with a big, big smile. And just a great ending to a great episode. But again, I have to ask, why, oh why, did they force the religious, in all senses of that word, shaving for Christopher Judge when all the other serpent guards and Jaffa were allowed that, though ridiculous, yes, bald cap, did you force him to shave his head because he has such a pretty head? I mean, he does pull it off. He's a very young man and he pulls it off beautifully. But I'm so very sorry to think of what he went through on a daily basis. And that they later explain that it's because of religious reasons and, and purity and whatnot. But then we meet so many other Jaffa that just wear that little floppity cap thingamabob on their head. And just like, did he ever have that argument with you? And did he just continuously fail to win it until we were like, what, eight? seasons in i'm so sorry but i mean you pull it off honey bunny you are a handsome handsome fella or were you like in solidarity with donis davis those are the things that now continuously pop into my head especially with, with this toke centered episode that braytech is seen to wear that cap and he continues to wear it the entire show so why was he never granted such grace or maybe he elected to not to do that because i can only imagine how sweaty that little thing must become at a certain point but, like, your sacrifice is noted and appreciated. And thank you for your service. As we have now come to the end of this very, very long episode, but hopefully, you know, educational and, and whatnot. Signing off for our next, the 13th episode, called Fire and Water, where we learn that Dr. Daniel Jackson is dead. What, you say? Well, you got to tune in to find out what happened. For additional reviews and content on a variety of subjects in addition to this franchise, come check out our podcast channel, as well as our Instagram account, Let's Review with Layla and You. For additional in-depth content, as well as provide us with a place for reciprocation where we can all share and exchange our ideas, thoughts, and whatever else we feel like sharing with the world. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, drop a comment, give us a follow, and come share what y'all think. And to truly make this the all-inclusive podcast we set it out to be, come visit us in the RSS community where all our episodes come with a transcript. We do hope to see you there.